So welcome to the June episode of Simulcast Journal Club podcast. I'm here with Ben again to give you the latest in what we've been reading and what our contributors on the blog have been reading. How are you, Ben? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Coming at you live from a hotel room in Melbourne, so it's very exciting. Well, I know I'm, it's easy to get jealous that I'm the international jet setter of the two of us, obviously. Ben, although I think you're jealous you weren't at SMAC. And just for all our listeners, there was a huge SIM presence at SMAC this year. We, we know we did our little episode on the SIM house, but there were also some fantastic main stage events related to simulation, and Jesse and I will be doing a short podcast on that. So hello to all the people who were there, but for the people that weren't, we'll be bringing the best of it for you. So, Ben, we might get into it. Uh, did you want to kick us off with talking about the paper of the month? Yeah, I'd love to. So this month we looked at a paper called Coaching the Debriefer, Peer Coaching to Improve Debriefing Quality in Simulation Programs, uh, and it was by Cheng et al. and was published in Simulation in Healthcare uh, ahead of print in May 2017. So in this article, Cheng and the other authors provide what they call a practical guide to peer coaching for debriefing and simulation-based education. But what I loved about this paper is that the principles involved can really easily be extended to areas outside of SIM as well. So I know I certainly sent it to a lot of uh, guys at work that might be interested. After first acknowledging the importance of ongoing faculty development for SIM educators, as well as acknowledging you know, the actual expenses involved in formal training programs, the authors proposed a pragmatic coalface alternative, which is essentially peer coaching integrated into the flow of teaching that offers opportunities for educators to maintain and expand their skills with minimal impact on existing work commitments. And it sounds glorious, doesn't it? Um, but the article provides this, you know, really beautiful vision about the power of structurally integrating peer feedback into SIM education delivery, discussing how it can assist in founding a culture of transparency, of accountability and patient safety. And I think in many ways, it really mirrors the journey we hope our learners are going to take on their own self-improvement journeys in healthcare delivery. But the meat of the article really involves extensive detail and problem solving regarding challenges to peer coaching effectively. And some of the barriers that they identify include power and experience differentials between senior and junior educators, a fear of retribution from junior coaches who have valid feedback for their seniors but are you know, kind of scared to give it, and a lack of standardised feedback structure. And the authors then propose a number of options to address these barriers, including a structured pre-brief at the start of an education day where you kind of establish your goals together, agree upon some ground rules, and really uh, establish a second safe container for the educators themselves to provide and receive peer feedback. They've also suggested utilising a debriefing feedback tool, such as the supplied debriefing feedback form that they have in the article, or the DASH or the OSAD, uh, to structure and validate feedback. And they then, one thing I really liked was they defined two separate feedback strategies to use when you're giving peer feedback, one being targeted peer coaching, which is almost a bit like the rapid cycle strategy that we talked about last month, really for rapid on-the-spot observations and feedback. And then the other option being debriefing the debriefer, where you have a more extended learning conversation with the educators involved at the end of the day and really problem solve some of the issues that came up. The article then concludes with a stepwise model for implementing a peer coaching process within your workspace so you can turn your own sim centre into this bastion of self-reflective awesomeness. Your words, not his, I think. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing <laughs> a little bit. But, you know, that was the general guess that I yep. was taking away from it. 
used in the paper. So I thought I might just go straight into the blog responses this month because um, they're really fascinating. Um, I think there was a sense overall that the paper or the challenges raised in the paper anyway were easily relatable and that the paper unpacks and categorizes the underlying issues well. And there was this general acknowledgement that peer feedback is really challenging. And Rowan Dyes kind of stated it as, look, at this paper is very helpful when someone else takes your lived experience, unpacks it, and then describes it within a framework that's easy to understand and relates to the existing literature on the subject. There was definitely acknowledgement that many of these principles uh, were extendable to non-SIM environments. And then what I really enjoyed was that the group attempted to problem solve many of their shared barriers to peer coaching. So we identified things like using a SIM buddy to have a more long-term nurturing feedback relationship with, someone who you don't have to keep re-establishing that container of safety with because it's pre-existing, profiling learning objectives at the start of the day to really empower specific feedback from your fellow coach. And then uh, the main author of the paper, Adam Cheng, suggested that senior educators can actually soften the power differentials in peer coaching by role modeling vulnerability and by asking for that specific feedback, but also thinking about asking for feedback that the junior educator would actually have expertise in. I thought it was a really sophisticated way of encouraging that relationship between the two of you. The chat was fascinating and I think you're right most people breathed a huge sigh of relief that you could read when they said aha this is exactly my problem how do I get some idea that I'm debriefing well and how do I open up a conversation with people about that what I did notice was that people were trying to and I think that's the beauty of this paper is that it gives you some tools in order to do that mm. So I guess moving on to the expert opinion now, we were again blessed with a, a Dumbledore level sim expert this month with Walter Epic uh, kindly joining us on what I'm assuming is a, a pretty impressive post smack haze. Um, so he provided his expert commentary on our discussions in the article. And for those who don't Walter know Walter, um, he's a pediatric emergency physician in Chicago and he's a very prolific academic, a, a world renowned expert in debriefing. He's an author on this month's paper and, paper and a multitude of pivotal educational papers, some of which we've looked at, including um, structuring feedback and debriefing to achieve mastery learning goals, uh, learn-centered debriefing for healthcare simulation education, um, and promoting excellence in reflective learning and simulation, development and rationale for a blended approach to healthcare simulation debriefing, or the PELS paper, as it's someone's referred to. So we're pretty excited to have him. I'm very grateful for his time. Um, and Walter really read our comments very thoroughly and, and he provides some further detail around, around a number of points that were raised. Firstly, he really uh, amplified the discussion about extending the principles that the group raised out uh, to areas outside of simulation education. And he provides some links, uh, which are in our PDF summary, to more resources to check out how to transfer those principles effectively from uh, giving peer feedback in the simulation environment to giving peer feedback in the clinical environment. He then latched on to that principle of vulnerability that Adam raised. Uh, and Adam sort of described it as a important technique for establishing that safe container for feedback, which is essentially, you know, kind of putting yourself out there and saying, hey, I'm really keen to improve. Can you give me sp some specific feedback about such and such? And really role modeling that openness to feedback. But then Walter introduced a second pillar for that, which he refers to as fallibility. So you've got the vulnerability on one side and then the fallibility clinical case on the other. 
And he describes that as not only demonstrating that you're keen for feedback, but openly acknowledging that you make mistakes. So if I took it back to the clinical case that we used this month where we had Brad, who's a senior educator, wanting to get some feedback from Nitin, his junior, you could say something like, look, Nitin, I know I've been your mentor, but I'm really keen for honest feedback on this debrief. And I was worried about engaging my learners and it didn't feel effective to me. What are your thoughts on that? And then finally, Walter kind of follows that up with giving some other tips on delivering feedback and in particular, making feedback less threatening by focusing on the learner outcomes rather than the debriefer actions. So uh, to continue that case example, I guess Nitin might say rather than rather going, you know, you're right, Brad, I don't think you engage the nurses very well in this discussion. He might instead say something like, Brad, I'm glad you raised engaging learners because when I watched that debrief, I was concerned that a number of nurses seemed to want to raise some issues, but they did. Why do you think that was? Or what do you think about that? And I think it's a really subtle but important difference that I hadn't thought about um, that I'm really looking forward to incorporating in, in future discussions. It actually brings up the single and double loop learning that we'll be talking about with one of the other papers. And unsurprisingly, Walter takes a sort of masterful uncover the deeper frames and approaches, not just you did this well, do more of it, you didn't do that so well, maybe do it differently next time. Obviously, both have their place, but I think Walter once again gives us some nice uh, words for that. And you're quite right here. I think he what the other thing that I think is really important from this is just as you intimate, Ben, is its translatability to our peer feedback on the floor. And again, Walter gives a article that he's been working on this whole agenda about how do we translate some of these fabulous peer feedback conversations to just everyday work on the floor. And I think that's one of simulation's greatest uh, opportunities. So thanks both for the case, the paper, and for summarising the discussion. Yeah, cheers. It was a great month. Thanks, everyone, for contributing. All right, well, I might uh, jump in then with our two other papers that I thought we might have a look at this month. And the first one comes from the Boston Children's Hospital and it's called Sim Zones, an Organisational Innovation for Simulation Programs and Centres. And it's by Christopher Rusin and Peter Weinstock, who are both fairly big names in the simulation community in Boston and both work at the Boston Children's Hospital Simulation Program. And uh, I know Peter a little bit because we were uh, at Harvard Macy together 12 years ago. And the work they do there is really outstanding, just how comprehensive it is. But the mere size of their program is probably one of the reasons that led them to develop this article. So basically the audience for this article are those people who are starting to get together a more comprehensive simulation program or centre in which there's different offerings, different kinds of learners, different types of simulation taught and really trying to provide some sort of rationale for how to invest resources, how to invest time, how, what kind of equipment is necessary to have some kind of a logic to how the program is structured. And I would say that in fact, this is many people who I just, for instance, visited an institution north of where I work. They've got a new hospital that's opened. They've got a sim centre and they're now starting to grapple with well, who are going to be the learners, who are going to be the teachers, what are we going to be doing here and trying to have some sort of a theoretical basis to go back to when it's thought between, well, will we run course A or will we run a procedural skills session B? So to have some kind of logic behind it. So that's the rationale is that now there's so many different types of sim, we really need to be able to 
have a framework in which to think about it. So the way that the authors crystallized these issues is to say that they thought there were five key issues that were involved in thinking about simulation programs. The first was how to support both single and double loop learning. Now, that's worthy of a podcast in itself, the discussion of those two things. And if you haven't read about that and you're a simulation educator, it is worth it just for that. Essentially, single loop learning is where you provide some sort of a directive approach. The learner is trying to achieve a certain well-described goal. Whereas double loop learning is probably more what we think about in terms of advocacy inquiry debriefing, but as a learning framework, it is not just what did you do, but trying to understand how you problem solve to begin with. So it's a deeper level of learning. And of course, both have their place in our training programs, but simulation doesn't, does often fall into one category or the other, or sometimes combines the two. And so there's a great table in there for anyone who hasn't really been familiar with these terms before. Uh, The second issue is how to manage training of faculty, given that not one size fits all. The third is how to optimise participant mix, knowing that sometimes we want interprofessional mix, sometimes we want single profession, sometimes we have more advanced or more junior learners. The fourth one is how to balance things like in situ or centre-based learning, because of course, again, there is a place for both. And the fifth issue they identify is ongoing research and evaluation and how to organise and target what to do in that field as well. So on the basis of these issues, they come up with a framework that they call SIM zones. And the way they say that this is a framework to guide course development and delivery. And again, just to run briefly through what they mean by this, zone zero is where it's a single learner doing something with automatic feedback. So think about your basic life support machine that tells you if you're going too fast or not deep enough. So this is deliberate practice with a skill set without an instructor. Zone one continues to be foundation clinical skill sets. So that's probably something where you have an instructor, but again, there's a very narrow focus of the learning. And as they described, very... Uh, loud signal to noise ratio, so limited complexity. And interestingly, they would say this is about a third of the courses that they do at Boston Children's. Zone two then takes it up a level, uh, what they described as acute situational instruction. So this is something like a mock code, so greater complexity. And again, they say this is about a third of all their courses. Zone three is probably what many of us would think of as uh, team-based simulation, where they are aiming, though, for this more double-loop learning, more deeper understanding, as well as looking at complexity, interfaces with human factors and equipment. And uh, so highly contextualised learning. And they say that's about 25% of their learning. And then zone four is really on the edge of real life. So how do you do either in situ training or, more importantly, even use the simulation skills, just as we were talking about before, for uh, debriefing real clinical events. So I guess my comment on this, Ben, is that this having some kind of a rationale or organising framework for this problem is a really good idea. I think, it, think it's much better than the way that many of us tend to work, which is first in best dressed for the sim lab or the sim staff. I'm not sure that that's the best rationale. I'm sure they should have one. Uh, whether this sim zones is perfect Of course not, and the authors, of course, don't pretend that it's perfect. But I think the idea of stepping back when you're at the beginning or at at, indeed any point in thinking about your SIM program and thinking, 
What's the rationale by which we're trying to run this? What are we trying to achieve? And how do we actually deal with those five issues and others? So my take here is it's a good idea to even know what you do and then it's a great idea to actually have a plan for how to organise things. So again, really one for people who are part of a bigger program, but I think in fact that's probably many of us. What do you think, Ben? Well, I just want to start with a question, actually, if that's okay. Um, you, I, so single and double loop learning was a new concept to me. I'm just wondering, is there much of a difference between that and, say, comparing mastery learning or skills acquisition versus uncovering frames, or is that basically the same principle in different words? I think that I think it's a similar principle, and actually it's – if you want to know the theoretical background, Chris Argerus, who wrote about this first, is probably one of the biggest influences on Jenny Rudolph's thinking. So I think that sort of helps to explain. And you look at the diagram in this paper, which comes from Argerus, you can also you can see it in Jenny Rudolph's uh, debriefing with Good Judgment article as well. So I think there's some similarities. Of course, you've got the mastery learning you're trying to perform to a standard for your single loop and then your double loop is really uncovering something a little more which is thinking about your general approach to problem solving. Um, again, I probably haven't done it quite justice but I think it's worth really thinking about simulation education. Great, thanks for that. Um, so look, I, I really love this article because I think it encouraged simulation educators to bring it back to their learning objectives rather than throwing sim at people and assuming you're going to get better workplaces or better work practices out of it. Um, the only critique I have respectfully would be I just wondered where there was a little bit of overreach with their outcomes in that um, I might have misinterpreted, but it felt like they, they were describing that through these classifications they were able to, to solve a number of barriers that they had that they listed at the start with improving their simulation education and achieving quality research and ongoing faculty development. Um, and it made sense to me that this classification would allow you to have a more sophisticated approach to solving those problems, but I wasn't sure exactly how the classification system itself would always fix some of the problems identified. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. I think they sort of felt like they needed to do that to round back to the five issues that identified. But you're right, sometimes I felt like it was a little bit of a squeeze trying to make the zones fit the problem solving. Uh, but again, I think some rationale is better than none, but um, I think I take your point as well. Yeah, it's definitely going to affect how I approach that problem solving in the future when we're talking about designing courses or how to solve problems in the workplace. Excellent. Well, I might go on to paper two now, which harks back to one that we did earlier in the year, a systematic review by Stephanie O'Regan about observers versus participants, so-called participants in SIM. So the, the title of this paper is the effects of active, in brackets, hot seat versus observer roles during simulation-based training on stress performance, a randomised trial. And this is from uh, Bong et al. from a group in Singapore, uh, and in specifically a group working in paediatric anaesthesia. And I think the two issues that they raised as their rationale or introduction to the paper were that the hot seat learners are stressed. 
and I guess we know that and I guess we assume that this is necessary for performance improvement or I think that's been inherent in many of our thinking. But I'm not sure that we've ever really known where the marginal gains stop. We all know from 1909 the Yerkes-Dodson curve of stress versus performance to a certain level as your stress goes up your performance increases but for all of us at some point there is a decompensation part to that curve and I think sim educators with any experience have probably seen people over that curve when we've designed the simulation wrongly such that load or stress from any source is too great but sometimes it's hard to pick that in advance and sometimes it's hard to know where the learning stops uh, even before the performance might stop. So I think that was the first issue. Stress is an issue. The second issue was, as they rightly identify, and as you said earlier, uh, simulation-based training is resource intensive. So we often have groups of learners where some people are in the so-called hot seat roles and others are observers watching the simulations. And I would say that many of us feel like they're so-called just watching and the assumption that they get less out of it than the people who are in the observer roles. And I think this paper is basically designed to test that assumption. The way they describe their aim is to explore the differences between stress levels and non-technical skills performance between hot seat and directed observers. And as I said, Stephanie O'Regan did that systematic review in advances in simulation last year and we reviewed observers. And as I said, Stephanie O'Regan did that systematic review in advances in simulation last year and we reviewed it this year, which really questioned that to begin with and found a number of articles that suggested that directed observers, i.e. those given something to actually watch or do as they were watching, had sometimes at least as equivalent outcomes as the active participants and in a couple of cases uh, better ones. So the way they did this, uh, this Singaporean group, was a prospective single-centre randomised control trial. They took paediatric anaesthesia trainees and 37 of them were randomised into two groups. So one group were hot seat and the other group were observers. So all of these trainees then did three sessions of simulation, one week apart. So 18 of them were hot seat participants and they took on the primary anaesthetist role in all of their scenarios. The other 18 were observers for the first two simulation sessions. They were directed observers, so they're asked to watch certain things, but they weren't actively involved in the scenario. But then they were a hot seat participant in the third simulation. Uh, the paper do does give some details of the actual scenarios they did, but they would be no surprise to anyone who worked in anaesthesia or uh, in specifically paediatric anaesthesia. They're all fairly tough scenarios, I thought, where they had uh, emergencies in the operating theatre that required management. So actually fairly simple kind of setup. Groups going through, half of them being in that hot seat role for all of the scenarios and half of them watching the first two. So then their measures that they did while they were doing this were after the second scenario, they took a salivary cortisol and measured the heart rate as a measure of stress. Then they also asked them to do this uh, survey called the DAS, which is a subjective measure of the participant's stress. So they measured stress using those things and they did it at a number of points in time. Then the other thing they did was to do a non-technical skills rating as their measure of performance. 
So this was assessed by observers watching videos of the recording. So they were basically assessing the non-technical skills shown by all of the participants, so both the hot seat and observer groups, when they were participating in that last scenario. So half of them had already done two scenarios as hot seat, the other half had only been observers. Uh, just a quick aside, they used the ANTS rating, Anesthetist Non-Technical Skills Scale. Um, this is a fairly old measure, but well validated, uh, which involves task management, team working, situational awareness, decision making. So, Ben, you probably read it, so I guess you know what they found. But for our listeners, the results were not <laughs> the results were not surprisingly the hot seat people had more stress both as measured by their salivary cortisol and by their subjective report. However, the observers group performed just as well as the hot seat group in that final scenario. So although the hot seat group did get more stress, they actually didn't have any better performance in that third scenario as the group who had observed the first two. As a little aside, they also found that the stress did not diminish with repeated exposure. So the group that were the hot seat, they got no less stressed by the time they did their third scenario from when they did their first one, which is kind of interesting and hopefully doesn't uh, confound those stress inoculation guys too much. So comment with this is we, the trick with all these things is, is there truly no difference and it's just as good watching as it is doing? Or did they just not find it with their measures? And I think you've got to think about, well, how much faith do you have in the measures of performance? It's a pretty good scale they used, so I guess it's not too bad. And I think for me, it gives me some reassurance that the observers are getting a lot out of it. I'm not sure that I would just consign people to being only observers as their simulation experienced. Uh, this, of course, was acknowledged in the limitations of the paper, but I think good on them, a really intensive approach to answering a really So I geeked out a little question. bit about this think, study. Um, I thought it was such a beautifully designed study that their methods and stuff was described so well it felt very replicable. And I actually went back to, this is a bit irrelevant, but I went back to, you know that paper we looked at about the, the strobe and consort guidelines for simulation research? And I was like, why is this paper feeling so good to me? And, it, and um, I checked it against that checklist in that table, and it's all very consult st statement compliant as well. So it was really thoroughly reported, um, clear article. In terms of my response, I'm, I'm reading my notes right now, and it's interesting. I think it's telling me more about me than the article, but there's a lot of resistance in my comments, and I guess um, I'm clearly not internally very happy with the findings. <laughs> but um, I think so. I think um, I was curious about why they bothered with a salivary cortisol in the end, because I didn't think that taught me anything super new about. Yes, it makes sense that it's more stressful being in the hot seat. Um, interestingly though, um, they did activate the observers a little bit, right? Because they told the observers, you might be called on at any point to participate. So I think that is just slightly different from being a passive observer. And I think that's interesting because I wonder, I wonder how far you could take this principle that, you know, if you're an active meaning maker watching a scenario, you're going to get almost, if not as much out of a scenario as, as you would by participating in it. But there's got to be a there's got to be a point, right? Where if you know, why don't we just sit in everyone in front of the TV and watch some episodes of ER 
and where we learn just as much is that there's clearly something happening in that relationship between being an observer with an active connection to the other participants or a shared social group or whatever that's making it more meaningful and useful for you. I'm just curious about how far you can stretch that principle. You're right. It's almost as though to prove their point, they needed a third group who literally just watched The Sims back in the lounge after the fact who were never going to be called on to participate and see if they did equally as well. Uh, it's hard to know. I, I think performance measures are really hard because, again, just to get an idea about, about how good people are from that kind of a measure when there's so many other confounding variables like people's prior abilities, prior sim experience, although they tried to correct for that, uh, many things might influence that performance. But nonetheless, I think, as I said, it's reassuring to me, but it also probably underlines the need for, I think, active uh, observers, not passive ones. Um, I also particularly liked in their description of, because um, they, they did a fair amount of filtering and pre-selecting, and one of the things they eliminated was anyone who might be stressed for other reasons. And they listed like four kind of types of trauma, like someone who'd had a recent, I can't remember, I think it was a hospital death or something, and then it was... Uh, a recent relationship breakup, and then one of them was marriage. So I thought that was an interesting uh, approach to uh, civil unions in Singapore, that it's considered one of the traumas you might need to uh, exclude yourself from, <laughs> from a study for. I'm surprised they still got 37 left after that exclusion <laughs> criteria. <laughs> All right, Ben, you better get on to some more serious stuff, mate. What have we got coming up for next month? Yeah, look, so I'm, I'm trying to do this tiered, tiered learning or what do you call it? Um, oh, building houses. Scaffolding? Scaffolding, that's the one. So I'm trying okay. to do you know, some scaffolding of our, our journal articles in the last few months. So I'm really wanting to continue that theme of faculty development. So next month we're going to look at an article from Simulation in Healthcare called Simulation Faculty Development, a Tiered Approach. And it was published ahead of print in uh, 18th of March, and it's by Peterson et al. Um, and the authors of this article are from the University of Alabama in Birmingham, and they've implemented a more structured but uh, tiered faculty development program there for the staff in their SIM service. And so in this article, they present that program and then they reflect on the lessons learned through that implementation. And we're lucky enough to have all of the authors joining us this month as our expert commenters. Uh, and it'll be really interesting to see what our journal clubbers think of this um, in terms of we kind of looked at one option, which is that, you know, you get your sim buddy, you get some peer coaching happening on the floor and you can foster those kind of learning relationships. And now we're going to look at the other end of the spectrum where how do you implement a very structured um approach to getting your faculty to, to skill up and, and get better at their service delivery. Excellent. Well, that'll be good and it will be nice to get some uh, commentators. We love having Walter and Adam, but I think it's time we reached out and uh, we've got a very uh, another fantastic group who's agreed to contribute for us uh, next month. Well, Ben, thanks very much. Just another shout out to anyone. The July the 10th is the last day for early bird registration for the Simulation Congress and Simulcast will be there as official broadcasters. Ben and I will be there ready to interview you if you happen to be attending or speaking. So we're looking forward to that and we'll look forward to another fantastic month on the Journal Club. <laughs>